Welcome to Main Street Mesa, where we discuss issues around building a more human, people-centered community in Mesa, Arizona, and other communities like it. I'm Ryan Wozniak. I'm David Crummy. Thank you for joining us for our podcast adventures. This episode, the continuation of our book club, Jeff Speck's Walkable City, The Comfortable Walk, Step 7, Shape the Spaces, and Step 8, Plant the Trees, pages 212 through 233 in their 2013 first edition paperback copy. <laughs> but first, letters. Oh, yeah, letters. All right, so we do have two guests with us. Uh, Martin Scribner, I am the uh, Director of Development Services for the City of Maricopa, but uh, more importantly, I have a long history with uh, talking about new urbanism and uh, have, a, uh, in fact, been the chair of the New Urbanism Division for the American Planning Association. Uh, and involved in leadership for about 10 years for that division. Uh, so have a, a, a little bit of knowledge about that area, which I think is relevant to one of your chapters here too. We'll be leaning on you. Right. And Amy. Amy. So my name is Amy Williamson. I'm the executive director for Trees Matter. We're a 501c3 nonprofit that focuses on increasing the tree canopy in the greater Phoenix metropolitan area. So um, hopefully my expertise in um, trying to engage the community in trees will be helpful for chapter and then I'm also on the uh, board member for the Urban Phoenix project as well. That's wonderful. Welcome to both of you. We really appreciate you joining us. But before we talk about that, we're going to talk about ourselves for a few minutes. Yeah. We are in our mailbag, which isn't a mailbag. It's called Facebook because we're in the 21st century. We've been sharing about a couple uh, terrifying things. Uh, Ryan, you shared the video of the uni- from the University of Tennessee about all those bikes hitting the railroad tracks at 10 degrees, which Long was dis- <laughs> disturbing. If you haven't seen it, uh, basically it's this video that this guy set up in his office that looks out on a railroad track that hits the intersection at a 10 degree angle. And he recorded 53 wrecks in two months. So the city that that was in, uh, they studied it for about two years. They had a $200,000 solution to fixing that, but they ended up deciding on $5,000 of asphalt and paint to reduce it, to move it from 10 degrees to 65 degrees, which solved most of the accidents. That was disturbing. I have a Portland, Oregon t-shirt that uh, actually depicts (laughs) this. It says, I basically fell off the handlebars in Portland. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it yeah. makes me cry every time I do that. In their, my mind. Solution, their solution important. It's just post these signs sh- depicting somebody Wrecking. flying over their handlebars <laughs> across railroad tracks. Yeah, <laughs> I, I remember my childhood <laughs> and hitting storm drains and having that same experience. Um, didn't appreciate that. Uh, I also saw that uh, Arizona made the news. We're number number three for pedestrian deaths in the country. Another top five for, for us. A good win. That was in the Arizona Central. Nice. So, um, it sends a clear message. Yeah. I think that's an increase from a few years ago. Yeah, I think when we had that episode of this, we were talking, I think we're only fifth. So we're moving up. So that's pretty good. <laughs> Um, Goals. No relevance to this podcast whatsoever. Or walkable cities or... Or pedestrianism. Yeah, no. Or safety or anything like that. So stop listening right now because obviously this is not important messages. If you know, if you think of one thing when you listen to this podcast, it's stop listening. (laughs) Um, Also, uh, we have been sharing a lot of Strong Towns links. 
I think we could share every single one of them and have an episode about each of those. They're great. If you're not following Strong Towns on Facebook, you should be. We aspire to be as cool as them. I, I wouldn't even think that I'm worthy enough to have the thought of aspiring to be that good. Uh, and then, finally, before uh, we go, you posited the question, what should we follow? We have about two more, three more podcasts to go after this on Walkable City. What are we going to do next? Right. And the, the amount of feedback that we got on that question was just overwhelmingly silent. Crickets. <laughs> I got a suggestion. So uh, craft breweries with with urbanism and how those kind of work off of each other. We should do an episode on that. So tap that AZ. <laughs> we have bottles here. Yes. It's all right. We're drinking um, Deschutes uh, Swivelhead Red, a delicious India-style red ale. Not local. Bend, Oregon. But Jeff Speck talks about Oregon a lot, so it's but all right. I was thinking in terms of Mesa's gut. A little bit of that happening. We have two breweries within six hundred feet of each other. So I and think you bring those guys before in the end of the year. It. We'll have a third. We need, we need to start tracking the progress that we make starting now, thanks to the microbrewing industry in downtown Mesa, and then have the success story and the best-selling book ever to come out of downtown Mesa brewing. I think we should we should ever. actually go to Oro or Desert Eagle or Cider Core. And sit down, there. record there, talk about that. That'll be fun. We can invite other people. Oh, well, I don't see any problems with this. We've recorded in a restaurant already. Yeah, we have on Main Street. It was our loudest episode, but uh, but you suggested nice. "Bird on Fire" by Andrew Rose. Mm-hmm. Andrew Rose no. Ross Ross. I copied this from your post. Oh my bad. Um, "Happy City" by Charles Montgomery and "Native to Nowhere" from Timothy Beatley. Why'd you pick those three? Well, they were on our Google Drive list of potential reads and seemed like they would be most easily transitioned to from this book and kind of give something of a variety. Could be fun. Bird on Fire is really sustainability and equity-minded. Happy City is very happiness-minded. I don't know. I haven't read it yet. So <laughs> it, might- it talks about basically the urban or the, the public sphere and how that can contribute to people's happiness, the, the livability of walkability, if you will. And Native to Nowhere is actually the book that got me interested in planning. Awesome. Oh, and finally, uh, I think we mentioned it before, but on October 25th, we are presenting together at the American Planning Association, Arizona chapter, uh, Ryan and myself, Jeff McVeigh, Ram Pandalaya, Hendiala, and Milagro Zingoni. Discussing how to run your own podcast, lessons we've learned, how to do it on the cheap, and most importantly, impressions on this book and lessons we need to bring to Mesa. And now that we've dove through this whole book by the time we get there, we'll be able to do a deep dive and talk about all the things that we love and maybe uh, get all experty with uh, our guests. Who actually know way more than we do. Mm-hmm. That's, so, a, that's a good thing. Are you going to record that as a podcast? Yes. Of course. <laughs> Uh, we're going to call this the uh, very first podcast ever recorded at the American Planning Association Arizona chapter. That's a bit of a long title. <laughs> we're breaking uh, we're, ground, we'll, though. We'll just turn it into an acronym. By the way, guests, we hate acronyms, but we use them all the time. Um, so send your comments to MainStreetMesa at gmail.com or join in on the discussion on our Facebook at Main Street Mesa. Let's get into this. Awesome. Walkable City, step seven, or I should say... 
the comfortable walk. <laughs> Step seven, shape the spaces. Yes. I like this chapter a lot. Uh, I think it taps into a lot of what new urbanism is trying to tap into. It gets into some some jargon stuff that uh, he always likes to put in quotes. But uh, we can learn a little bit of jargon and what it means. Embrace me. Object fetishism. Object fetishism. Tiny is tastier. Whether or not. So at the very beginning, we're talking about humans being hunted. Talks about the forest edge and how there's been the argument that people feel comfortable adjacent to the forest's edge. Like that city's popped up there because they could control one of their flanks, if you will, from, uh, to be protected and then see out into the pastures in the distance to see when threats are coming. And then there's the arcades and veradas and porches and colonnades that all mimic the trees. So it's very yeah. psychology oriented. Yeah. And, and kind of biolo- biology and history going on here, yeah. Right. So this, I like this perception of, like, human scale, right? Like, all the nerves and the, the eyes and the, the nose and the mouth and the ears, they're all facing the same direction. These are all our, our sensory mechanisms and how that is trying to keep yourself feeling comfortable as a pedestrian, how you experience your space, who you confront and how you confront your environment is very much head on. So the fact that you have you do protect your flank, I think, is is an interesting concept that you have a, a blind side. So if you can protect that blind side and keep an eye out for that threat, that, that car coming down the, the, the way or other people that are mm-hmm. uh, walking towards you, right? You have this environment that you can control or you feel secure. Kind of like an arcade, right? So you have arcades, you have colonnades, you have... A feeling of enclosure and we get to that a little bit in the tree the how the tree space uh shape the space as well well i think it's really about this sort of sense of refuge and calm that you get from it you know regardless of whatever underlying psychological or or other lists you know reasons that this could exist it's just it's really a feeling of refuge and tranquility and not being out in the open and bare you know the difference in between walking in a parking lot that's just barren and walking in a nice urban space is tremendous. And just it's just a nice feeling. It just feels good. And I think we talk a lot about kind of almost creating a room with the buildings, the outdoor space being kind of equivalent to that. So when it's, yeah, when you have a space in that, then all of a sudden you're exposed. Kind of what you were talking about there where it just, uh, maybe you can't even place it. It just, it doesn't, it's not inviting. It's not that doesn't fall into that walkable category. So I will point out that downtown Mesa took this concept to the nth degree by installing the colonnades along Main Street, mm-hmm. which we I think we went too far. Really? Because they really feel, in my opinion, I think those colonnades really feel claustrophobic. Uh, it forces your eye down the street. You don't actually look left and right into the stores. It creates a lot of shade, but it's also very dark. The pillars that they use to create it are giant, so you can't see around stuff. And so you actually feel like a little more claustrophobic. And when you're walking down the area that has the colonnade, there are sections that feel good and Mm -hmm. there are sections that don't. And if you start paying attention, you can tell the difference is the height. Usually it's Mm -hmm. a little bit more open. So you have cover over your head, but you don't, you're not enclosed completely, you know, and you can start looking at different expanses on that at Robeson and Main Street they did this really cool probably 15 foot green graded thing on the uh, oh my goodness the Drew not the Drew building 
It's the old sofa shop. Cut all that out. <laughs> but that feels really, really nice. That's just a metal structure. It feels really nice, but then you go right next to it, and it's like eight-foot ceiling, eight-foot-long hallway, and it feels very awkward, and, and someone walks by you or someone comes by on a bike, and it's just the opposite. I think I've experienced this more in the nighttime where you want that uh, nighttime temperature to drop, and sometimes the the shorter uh, ceiling will actually kind of have that urban heat island blanket it traps effect. the heat yeah, yeah to, for the pedestrian at the at the exactly the wrong height and then so it kind of makes that nighttime temperature feel stuffier and not as as cooling as you would want from a, a nighttime well i think the other thing is that, that we like to see people and if you have these giant blocks that are keeping you from seeing anything it doesn't make you feel safe as you wonder what's going on I like how he talks about the checkerboard effect and the missing teeth on, on Main Street. So when I think about Mesa, I think we do a pretty good job on this on the north side of Mesa, uh, on Main Street between Robeson and Center. There's very few missing teeth. Now on the south side, you get a few missing teeth, but we've done some good uh, built environment stuff where there's actually a bit of a wall that separates the sidewalk from the parking lots where there is one. I think next to the 101, uh, if you will, um, and stuff like that. Um, but the idea that there's not this blank uh, nothingness in the pedestrian realm that, that engages you. you. You're constantly engaging with shop after shop after shop and different kind of experiences. And we have a lot of glass uh, along Main Street. So we have a lot of things kind of going for us and the missing teeth. Is there anything in your experience where you've tried to work uh, a site development or new development into helping fit into the missing teeth? Or is that a, is that a design challenge that that's easy to, uh, easy to fix in your experience, Martin? Or I, I think it depends. So there's a lot of context that goes with it um, and the community itself. So if you're in a community like Mesa that has... Uh, some good bones to it that that it, it I think it lends itself to that sort of thing and, and you can kind of you got to talk people into things when it, it when it seems to fit my a lot of my background is in suburban communities that are further out and then you, you get into that whole you've got either green fields or something that's that doesn't already have those bones you don't and to try and create that from scratch is a real difficult conversation. Um, in fact, we had a, um, at one of my previous communities, we had one of those corners that was, it was a prime corner. There was a bar there that was going to go away and it was set way back from the corner. It was going to go away. They were going to bring in a brand new CVS and they were going to, the, the original idea was the planners were going to talk to them about bringing it up to the corner. Let's start some of that 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 walkability through there let's start creating that that public realm and um uh, the politicos got involved and said back off cvs gets to do whatever they want so we got the same old cvs that everybody else sees where the parking is on the corner the building is set back further um and then people in the back yeah yeah so we so sometimes you have some prime opportunities like that that are missed because either the elected officials don't get it or maybe staff is not pushing hard enough or in our case, it was a little bit of both. 
Um, if you've, like I said, if you've got a downtown that, that kind of works and you're filling in gaps, I think that's easier to, as a, as a political sell. Mm -hmm. Does, uh, does form-based code help or hurt this objective? I, I think, well, it depends. So planner's answer depends. Um, <laughs> the, I think if it's put together right, then it should. But it, it, I mean, it's just, it, it's kind of hard to say. It depends on how it's put together. And again, you can have all the code you want in the world, but if you don't have the, the elected officials backing you up, then it doesn't, it doesn't do any good because they're going to find ways around it. One, one of the quotes in here is, if a team of planners was asked to radically reduce the life between buildings, they could not find a more effective method than using modernist planning principles. And that just makes me think about how... Let's define modernist first. Yeah. <clears throat> well, like surface parking and... The, the great planning mm -hmm. that we did in 1970 through 1990 and Even 1960. Current. 1960, yeah. It, it dates to 1960 when we really start thinking that the automobile is going to fix the problems of economic development, people's access to opportunity. It's going to unlock all these freedoms, you know, and people will just have the ability to get away from the blight and all the bad city stuff. And we'll fix it with big parks and open space and trees. And, you know, that's going to... We didn't do that. No. We just did more parking. Yeah. And then as... As we started tracking more and more vehicles, I mean, it started in the 1960s, right? We started counting vehicles. We didn't start counting people. We, we counted vehicles. And, it, and the cities became dominated by the interest of making the vehicle work in the city. And fast forward to today, now we're trying to undo uh, a step too far or a, a drive, to, a lane too far, if you will. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and then there, again, I, I think there's a key here about missed opportunities. And, and I think about this because I saw a post uh, online this weekend about, um, so I spent uh, 12 years of my career in the Indianapolis area. And 20 years ago this weekend, they tore down or imploded the Market Square Arena, which was where they had uh, the Pacers play. So they built this nice big new arena, Conseco Field, or is, uh, I think it was Conseco back then. It's a banker's field house now. And then they went in and, of course, they took down the old structure. So what did they put in its place? Surface parking lot. And it's still a surface parking lot. They said it was temporary. That was 20 years ago. That was back in 97. And so it is right downtown. It's in a prime location. It's right near the Indianapolis marketplace. It's very walkable from a thousand different things right, right in that area. And generally speaking, Indianapolis has done a very good job of, of kind of making use of that since the late 80s when they built the Circle Center Mall and all this other stuff that's happening downtown. But that's still a surface parking lot. And you say, well, maybe they're looking at putting something else there in the near future. But you just lost 20 years. You lost a whole generation. So, well, And that touches directly to this idea that we shifted the way that we plan cities to be more car-centric. Mm -hmm. which trained three generations to think with their car and think that that's the way it's always been. Meanwhile, we have all of human history where it's not been that way. And so we've trained people to grow up that way, to expect that way, yeah. which is why CVS wants that parking lot up front, because that's how the banks have known that for as long as CVS has existed, which is time immemorial, parking lots are up front. 
So that's yeah. the only way that they work. Yeah. That's true. It's the only way it's ever worked for a CVS. Until now, they're switching it in the more urban mm-hmm. communities. But it's the financial, the financial rules and, right. and regulations. They won't lend for new construction on a CVS, or CVS won't invest in a community where they don't have a proven track record. And if we used these rules that were created by maybe by planners, that then it influenced how we lived in our city and we grew those expectations and all of the negative problems that happened because of that. Now it's enshrined in the way that we lend money and invest in infrastructure and buildings, it's not just that this is a planner's problem to solve. Planners now know better, but we now have our community that has 30 years of growing. That's the way it's always been mm-hmm. for the last 30 years. And we also have financial institutions saying that, oh, if I don't have this many parking spaces, it won't succeed. Right. And they right. they measure the eyes on the business based on the traffic flows on the adjacent street rather than truly creating a place for people that might actually become a draw. And so I think that's also a missed opportunity. Speaking of modernism, so modernism now thinking not not like uh, contemporaryism. This doesn't mean contemporary. We're, we're talking modernism as how do machines help improve people's lives? That is what uh, is meant by the context of modernism. And so you have thinkers like somebody who's very influential in Arizona, Frank Lloyd Wright, thinking in terms of broad acre city as to how do we separate the uses, give people lands and big homes and make them happy and improve their lives. That was the kind of the idea of where that where a lot of these ideas kind of are born from. There's a lot of unexpected consequences that have come along with that. Yeah, can I add like uh, equity issues, right? Like I was a kid that grew up in uh, the 90s and aughts or whatever you call them. And I was, because my parents both worked all summer, I actually did take the bus to like the mall. And I was the only person I knew that would take the bus. But like my mom grew up in Queens, New York, and she she took the bus and the subway everywhere. So there's also that like independence that children get. Um, And I do think that there are green spaces in suburbs if you have a certain income level, right? Depending. So there is that, it kind of creates like this mm-hmm. equity issue too, I think. Yeah, with that, that I think there's decades of suburbanism where the park was a place to drive to, not necessarily a place where people could walk to or bike to. And so the park scale uh, within the suburbs of the 70s, I'm thinking, they became very large places to drive through too. Because why wouldn't you want to drive to it? And so it wasn't until people started reacting to nope, this is actually detriment to people's lifestyles. It's a detriment to our health. It's a safety risk on the roads as people are trying to make their way to these parks. Maybe we shouldn't have a six-lane road adjacent to our parks. Well, so, And what are parks for? Kids playing, people playing. So we want kids to get to the parks. But yeah. it, especially in Mesa, like I live in a neighborhood where my kids can't safely walk to a park unless they walk to the car to get in the car to go to the park. Now, going to Riverview from our house, which is about a mile away, so an easy walk is not safe. Um, it's, so you same, can, it's the same as schools. It's the same thing um, with schools. We lived in Indiana. We lived less than a half a mile from uh, from my son's grade school. Not allowed to walk, even if there were sidewalks, which there weren't, but not allowed to walk anywhere in the in the um, school system. So forbid by the administration. Forbid, yes. It was against the rules. You had to be dropped off or, or ride the bus. Very, very suburban area. 
of Indianapolis. So. Back to shape the spaces. Yeah. Next uh, thing we look at. I, I want to highlight that modern urbanism is brought up again in the object fetishism section. Is that where you're headed? No, I moved on. Oh, well, <laughs> real quick, I just want to touch on the fact that uh, the idea of object fetishism is about Jeff Speck's railing on architects thinking that their gem of a building is the point of architecture. And there's this competition, right, that there's there's other ideas on what architecture should be and that I love this quote by Jan Gale where he talks about the order of operations for designing, uh, doing good urban design is life, then space, then buildings. And those should be the orders of operations. Those should be the, the priorities, first, second, and last, of what uh, is tasked for the architect. And he talks a lot about how that's been lost since the 60s with the love affair of the automobile. He brings up Vancouver as the example here. And the idea that Vancouver mm -hmm. has liner, liner buildings around, along the edge of the street that creates a walkable center, a walkable place, and a tall building in the middle that's stepped back. Right. And so the idea is that it doesn't matter how tall the building is. What matters is what does it what does it feel like to stand next to it? Right. And those taller buildings are also, like you said, set back, but also narrower. So you're still letting in light and air, which in a bigger city or older city like Boston is a premium because it's, it's kind of a dark city to begin with. And it's in, or in Chicago where you just got all this wind whipping through in between the buildings. So, But he also talks about the benefit of doing a shade study, which... I think in Mesa's context, right. in our environment, shade is so crucial for extending the comfort of the year. So there's a few months out of the year where sun's valued here, but more often than not, shade's valued. So doing a shade study could end up reaping value to the streetscape and the businesses that want to locate there in a comfortable environment for the pedestrian. Um, what anti-scorpion uh, building materials? <laughs> I, I want to highlight here that this is not <laughs> what? what? Is that a thing? No, it's I'm not, like it's not a thing. I'm sorry, a... <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm like, I live, I live in Mesa, and I, I haven't seen a scorpion in 20 years. Yeah. I saw one in my living room yesterday. Yeah, so. this is why you don't live on the edge of town. Right, right. crazy. If you live in downtown. That is the yeah. issue. Don't don't have these issues. Yeah, there's <laughs> not herds of scorpions. Maybe, rats, maybe, maybe mice or rats, depending on where you live. <laughs> right. Maybe <laughs> them, they're like six feet long. It's like a, like a big dog. Yeah. <laughs> you name them. <laughs> well, and you know, you were mentioning before the podcast start watching Game of Thrones. I've been reading the books, and they talk about scorpions as in a, the giant medieval siege weapon of uh, uh, firing giant. Yeah. You know, 200-pound crossbow uh, crossbows. Yeah. <laughs> Before we move on, I want to highlight that this is not like some universal school of thought, though, that tall buildings are the only thing that or that we can always accommodate tall buildings. Because there is a, a strong number of urbanism urbanists who believe in the human scale, right, that we shouldn't have buildings taller than five stories and that, you know, these, these structures that have elevators are a vertical cul-de-sac is the quote oh, yeah, the that, that comes from the chapter. Well, and you get into the Washington, D.C. rule right. that's been in effect for 120 years or whatever it is about the, the limited building heights. Ten stories, right? And um, it's the width of the right-of-way plus 20 feet, is that what it was, or plus 30 yeah. feet, something like that? It's, um, 
And that's still in effect. They changed it in, what was it, 1910 or something like that to expand it a little bit. Because originally, I think it was 120 feet. 20 feet taller than the width of each building's in fronting street. Yeah. So not even necessarily the right of way, but the street itself. It, I, I love the line after that. The running joke that Washington is a place where the <laughs> best architects go to do their worst work. <laughs> but it's more had excellent urbanism, whereas, you know, we get to have Bilbao Center for the Arts in the middle right. of weirdness. So rather than being obsessed about the figure or the, the what structure the building itself, looks like, yeah. where we're the, the figure ground or the, the, the void between the buildings, between one side of the street and the other side of the street, what do we do with the spaces in between? And again, where people that. go? <laughs> and so, Why do you keep making this podcast about people, people and making them happy to live in a city? Yes, I'm just a sucker. Hey, we're, we're in the, I'm trying to remember we're in that chapter they came up with the, uh, reference the abattoir sketch from Monty Python. Oh my goodness. Oh, I, yeah, had to, uh, I had yeah. to Google that and watch it. I didn't, I didn't recognize it right off. I did YouTube it and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this one. So, uh, look that, that up. <laughs> that, that was a great one. That's, I've never had that conversation with an architect before. <laughs> well, and Mesa doesn't have the issue when it comes to tall buildings of, Air, airplanes you guys don't have no even at the like in downtown mesa for example the tallest we get is well below the okay. faa's height requirements okay. i don't know we get airplanes but because that's like a big they're, thing they're with way up there. downtown phoenix and then you know something that i've heard in regards to like parks and tall buildings is that that can actually with that shade actually hinder the experience of parks mm-hmm. um, because certain you know plants need mm-hmm. sun to grow so that's like a huge thing with the japanese friendship garden in downtown phoenix with the new building being built right where their sun comes from and then central park i think there's been some there's been some issues or fights Okay. about that too with building tall buildings yeah i think that goes back to having an understanding of what your building's impact is on the area around it yeah i think that's important it depends yeah, yeah and like it's, and, it's all context in forestry we like urban forestry we always say right tree right place so i guess right with building, urban right, place? right building right place you right. know right. Yeah. yeah but is it also true that the right time to build a building is 20 years ago? <laughs> Probably. Here's my little spin on, on, on this whole context thing, right? So if you're going to make towers work, you, you're going to invite more people who are going to be parking uh, probably – live in that tower no matter what even if you're reducing the amount of demand for cars there's going to be people who live there who probably choose cars so the way that the taller buildings work is even though you are introducing more cars to the scene you're helping offset that by the intensity of uh, additional pedestrians who live on the additional floors right i think he talks about how that uh introduces a whole uh host of potential uh, sidewalk actors basically by having this intense density but he also gives credit to our St. Jane uh, for giving for looking to Boston to see that oh. you don't need <laughs> you don't need a whole lot of height in order to get to incredible density figures right well I think that's absolutely true and I you know you visit great cities places that are amazing and beautiful and you feel great and in my experience 
the building heights between three and seven stories. Doesn't mean that it's exclusive, but it's mm-hmm. just most cities tend to be built before 1900, so they couldn't build that much higher. But it's just great, great places to be and walk because they really valued the experience, the public space, not just the private space. What goes unmentioned in this section, which I think deserves mentioning, is how those older buildings also contribute to the affordability and the diversity mm-hmm. that your population can have in, in, the, in such a setting, right? Jane Jacobs talks exactly about that. Depending on what you're going for. <laughs> well, yeah. Because you might have, because again, you're going to go taller mm-hmm. buildings. Right. You're probably looking for, for uh, uh, something expensive, some condos or... Um, you know, high rent stuff. So. so I'm specifically referencing what David was talking about, right? With those older buildings that stay between three and seven stories. Mm-hmm. You know, those older buildings have that kind of built-in affordability in them because of their age. Right. The, unless the, the, unless the hipsters come in and, and gentrify so, And their smell. <laughs> yeah. if, you've part, ever, if you've ever lived in one of those. One, one of the great things about that is the um, Historic Preservation Green Lab did a great study in Tucson um, and a few other cities about the value of older buildings. It's a really great in-depth block-by-block analysis, basically showing that neighborhoods or areas of town that have older buildings bring in more sales tax revenue per square foot per acre Mm -hmm. because of the length, because it's typically more walkable, but also because rents are more affordable. So there's less vacancy, a lot of, a lot of interesting things. So huge shout out to, I think it's Michael Powell of the Preservation Green Lab. Good work. Yeah. And Urban3, also a good firm that does some great work with regards to the return on older denser parts of the cities as well. So if anybody from any of those firms is listening and wants to do pro bono work in Mesa, come on and talk to us. ASU <laughs> students, we've got some great <laughs> examples of how this could work in Phoenix. We've got uh, the methodology already exists. Let's do it. But before you move on too much from that, I, I have been thinking about the, the light rail and how that affects some of that outdoor space that you have going on coming through Mesa. Um, not being a... Um, community member of Mesa, I'm just curious as to how you guys feel about that, the, the light rail and how, what its effect has been on that, the pedestrian, um, you know, in, in, in okay. inviting nature of that area or the possibility of it, um, you know, it comes right down through some spaces and I mean, how, how do you guys feel like that, that affects that whole equation? So a little bit of context. So when the light rail was the funding mechanism for light rail happened in the 2000s and then light rail was approved main and city council decided to put that through main street it was right before we hit the downturn and we started uh, cutting as many corners as we could so one of the rules when it came through the downtown corridor was that we should shift as few curbs as possible so when light rail was inserted through downtown mesa they didn't touch any of the curbs. They tried not to do, except for station areas, they didn't do any new landscaping or affect anything outside of the street right away. Um, so quite literally and physically in the downtown Mesa corridor, it made zero change on the walkable street streetscape because they didn't, they didn't do anything because they didn't have the money. They tried to put it as much towards the operation. They didn't have money for extras and bells and whistles. Some of the things that it did benefit outside of the downtown area is that it created sidewalks in areas where there weren't. 
Um, they did put in a lot of street trees where we had zero. Uh, Valley Metro has a rule that within so many feet of the light rail stop, there has to be trees on the sidewalk. So we went from zero trees to, you know, maybe 50 trees around each light rail stop. So it actually, and they, and miraculously, they seem to be maintaining them well. Nice. Um, they're not turning into lollipops, um, which I am just thankful for every time. Um, Some well-trained contractors. Yeah, Mesa changed their tree contractor three or four years ago, and it went from lion tailing and lollipopping to uh, actually like looking at the health of the tree. I think Mesa has a landscape architect on staff too, so that might be an influence. Yes, but they're not in charge of the maintenance contract. Well, they'll get it. They'll get it <laughs> well, right someday. We're doing better. Yeah, which is a miracle. But but to answer. Martin's question from my perspective I think that for a lucky few who can juggle their majority of their life's responsibilities along the light rail corridor it's done a lot of good for that select audience um, and until the whole city or the whole region gets serious about more transit options it will continue to be kind of that isolated group and I, as, as a, as, because I don't live or work in the area that's served by the light rail, it's, to me, it's a novelty. I like it. I think it's great for, for the area. But again, to me, it's sort of like, oh, it's this, it's this kind of new thing that it doesn't affect me much unless I'm going to get a hotel and party on the other end of the, the yeah. line or something. The, and then make the my biggest effect that's happened is, so Mesa is a bedroom community. First and foremost, um, we're working really hard to not be. We're trying to get more jobs. Our economic developer development um, staff is trying to work on that. Um, but what has happened is that the people that relied on bus transit in the areas that are the same people that have been relying on bus transit in that area had an hour of their day given back to them. Those people now have a shaded walkway. All right, and only 200 feet to the light rail stop, but it's improved the neighborhoods along there to the point where people who are living there now get more time in their day. They have a ple more pleasant walk. We have a long way to go on those other things, but more than anything, the reason may, um, light rail needed to come to Mesa is because that's where people were going to Phoenix from. And so the red line when it was established was the highest capacity bus system, you would have two double length buses and one one of those broke down, you ruined someone's day or they lost their job or you know, you might ruin their life. Right. Light rail brings predictability, consistency. It's nice and air conditioned. Um, you know, it's a lot if, safer than if the bike. All you're buses doing is saving a few hundred parking spaces every day. I'm I'm totally in favor of it. I, I just I think of it in different terms maybe because I don't I, I don't use it. Yeah, and I think that's also your perspective. If you're yeah. trying to get to work and you can't afford a car or you can afford to get rid of a car and you can build your wealth more, yeah. that's great. Oh, that's but if you are, you know, like I'm guessing most of us in this room, doing pretty all right in life and we can afford a car and light rail becomes a luxury or an option, it's not really, I mean, it's great to take it to a game. It's great to go right. drinking. It's great to go out with friends on. It's great to go see a show. Um, but that's a that's an option. It's not... And it, it's not a lifestyle. It well, yeah, it's a lifestyle choice. It's not an it's not a necessity. It's not your way to get 
your paycheck. It's not your way to take your child to healthcare. It's not your way to get to the grocery store. So maybe what I was thinking about though was was how it affects the the pedestrian nature of the corridor. And you said there were no real changes made, but I I I would at least posit that as I hit an intersection where I'm crossing that light rail, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit put off by it. Uh, as a motorist, right? No, as a as a pedestrian. Oh, as a pedestrian, not as a motorist. Okay. So, I, so I mean, I would ask why. So I think about downtown Mesa. My only frustration with crossing is you have to push the big button to cross, <laughs> but that existed before the light rail. Right. Um, it's just dumb that they didn't fix that. Um, the street length didn't pass. You're getting a light rail every seven to 20 minutes, depending on your frequency. So you're usually not seeing a light rail vehicle when you're mm -hmm. crossing the street. Um, there's no curbs. They didn't put any curbs in the downtown area. Which so is different from most of your light rail mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure. And so well, it, I, I and the street's I, already significantly well, narrow. I'm, I'm coming back to the, the, the public space. Mm -hmm. So that what we were talking about before, we were sort of shaping that outdoor room, as it were. And I feel like where those spaces are, and maybe it's the nature of the Arizona, it's, it's wide open right there. I feel like I feel vulnerable as a pedestrian. I feel like it's this wide open. I've lost the space. Maybe it's just the nature of the well, intersection But what, what space is lost? Because it went from four lanes to two lanes. I mean, the, the, nothing well, has I, changed between the curbs except there's light rail instead of cars. Well, so I'm at it because you guys are around it. I'm asking your take on this that area and, and you're giving to me I, I hear you but yeah no i mean I, I can tell you all the places where we made mistakes but i mean i just part of the question to me is just like well not much has changed we just moved instead of having cars we now have light rail vehicles right. there's or, some additional artwork too that's been added right and yeah the station areas is, is uh have there been better like increase in businesses or Property values going up around the light rail. Property values are going up significantly. We're seeing we're seeing two things at the same time. We're seeing a lot more businesses opening, and we're also seeing increased vacancy. And when I look into the vacancy, the difference is rent. And so right. landlords are raising rent, which is increasing the vacancy because they think they can get more. But at the same time, we've gone from last time, I think, Five years ago, I did a count of restaurants on light rail, and we had around 70-something. Now I'm at 94. Hmm. So, I mean, this is a net increase, and a lot of these have lasted 20, 30 years, and a lot of them opened before light rail and are now doing better. So that's where that scary G word of gentrification mm -hmm. comes in and Whatever the affordable housing of... Yeah. yeah. Well, and one of the issues that we're running into in Mesa, we'll get there very soon, is the issue of displacement. Which is the main negative portion to gentrification, and we're starting to see that. Uh, West Mesa is the highest rent increases of any community in the valley. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really great that we have the potential to kind of look at what other major cities have done wrong and maybe do something different. Yeah, as community members. Well, I think before we run out of time, we should move out of trees. I want to talk about weather. Last item, oh, whether last, or not, last item. It's yeah, too it's, hot. It's, yeah, or, or windy or rainy. It's or too cold. Or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but whether or not, so it's going to happen. So people, people always people complain out. it's too hot to walk in Arizona. Um, not, not in February. It's pretty nice in February. 
<laughs> Some of the stuff that I love here is like, what's a, what American city has the most linear feet of successful retail-fronted sidewalks? Toronto. Toronto. All right. That's bloody cold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what developed country has the highest share of urban trips going to walking instead of driving? That was Sweden. Yep. That's bloody cold. <laughs> and and does. I read the chapter. I'm saying. They're just <laughs> so excited to get outside when they do get it. And how many months out of the year do Sidewalk Cafe stay open in Copenhagen? Copenhagen. How many months? All, all, all of them. Yep, 13 months. So it's a, it's a baker's dozen. Well, and this is one of the lessons that we had when we started running our movies on Main Street. So we did an outdoor movie in an empty lot on the side of a building and we went no matter what the month we had at least a hundred people if not three wow uh except for when we ran indiana jones and (laughs) i crying a little bit we had like 30 people (laughs) and at that point my heart was broken broken and america was dead well which one which indiana jones um is it, is that even the one with the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So, step oh, eight. Sorry. Plant the trees. Yep. Trees for life. The greenest of green products. Trees pay. What tree? Where? Amy, just talk. Just this talk. Is you. This is you now. Well, I mean, so first, uh, so I, I have the audiobook, so I was listening, which... If you listen to the audiobook, it's great because he has the most, like, monotone voice and this, like, <laughs> sarcasm. The whole, like, it's perfect. Um, my husband was laughing out loud quite a bit in the car when we were listening. But um, he starts out talking about, you know, all the benefits that trees provide from an urbanist perspective. So shade, reduced temperatures, um, absorbing rain and um, UV ex- uh, or reducing UV exposure, uh, absorbing tailpipe emissions. Um, reducing the effects of wind, which isn't as big of a deal here. It also slows cars. Um, so there's a lot of things, and that's not even everything that trees do. So that was like, you know, that was the first like paragraph uh, of the of the step. And then, you know, he talks about everything that I already kind of know about increasing property values and retail viability. Um, so I mean, for me. I look at a lot of studies. So one thing um, he doesn't really touch on that is starting to become very popular is the mental health benefits that trees provide. So there's this new trend called tree bathing. That's actually um, a national forest bathing. Sorry, that's an. Um, it's actually a, a like a national um, initiative in Japan. Mm-hmm. They. Um, they ask their citizens to go out and walk in the woods and be very like conscious and slow about the process and just absorb. So, you know, it's just generally walking in the woods. Does he mention something about a study that was done back in the seventies, I think about the sort of mental health benefits of, he just kind of touches on it. He touches on um, how it uh, feels like a shorter ride. So, which I remember when I lived in Monterey, California, you're like in the, forests for most of like highway well, i um, felt like there was a section that talked about shorter hospital stays yeah. on oh right yeah he does he does talk about that you're right he talks about uh surgical patients that if they see yeah so i guess he does explain that so like better experience if they had a window with trees versus 
uh, a wall, just a, a regular hospital wall, and and that this this study was done in seventy from seventy two to nineteen seventy two to eighty one. What if it was a wall with trees painted on it? How I good are, how good is the painting? <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends. <laughs> pretty good, at least fair to good. Yeah. yeah, so I guess I guess patients um, recovered faster. So maybe. <laughs> some funding that insurance committees can focus on. Do something. <laughs> it's so weird how economics plays a role in everything. And there's some economic jargon here. Yeah, well, one of the things yeah. that I wanted to touch on first was, even before he got onto all the other benefits, was that his, his comment or his thought that rich neighborhoods have more trees mm -hmm. than poor neighborhoods. Yes. And I thought that was stunning because we always assume that the tree in front of your house is your responsibility you have to pay for it maintain it water um, we don't maintain trees in front of houses in very few cases it's always the homeowner's responsibility it's not the city's responsibility right. well and private property is the majority like uh compared to public parks and public spaces Private property is at least, I'm sure, in Mesa, the majority of the land that mm -hmm. trees can be on. Um, yeah, so. well, I thought that that was telling because I think that was very true in Phoenix as well. Mm -hmm. You can tell a rich neighborhood from a poor neighborhood by how many trees there are. Yeah, I took a screenshot once because um, I used to work on 19th Avenue in Camelback, like right where the light rail comes through. and. Um, it's an area where there's a lot of uh, um, people with limited income, but there's accessibility to transit, which is great. But you um, are right, maybe less than a mile away is the Billmore Fashion Square. And you can see it just with um, taking a screenshot of which neighborhood has what, what, what income level, just by the amount of trees that are, are there, the green space that's right. there. That exact same lesson can be happened at Main Street and Mc Main Street and Robeson. So if you go to the middle of the light rail tracks in the middle of the intersection, in the exact spot where you're not allowed to be, and you turn and you face north, you'll see a beautiful tree-lined street. You'll see a center median of orange trees going the whole way down, the grassy median, two narrow streets, going all the way north as far as you can see. Then you turn your body all the way around and you face south. south and it's a 150 foot wide piece of asphalt for as far as you can see and what's the difference the difference is income one of those neighborhoods was a historically high income neighborhood petitioned the city knew someone neighborhood south of main street not true um, historic preservation is one, is one of those neighborhoods protected by historic preservation? One of, one of them is now. Um, one of them tried to, but they don't qualify under most uh, rules, so they're trying to qualify in a different way. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. City's got to pay for that, and they certainly don't want to pay for that in poor neighborhoods. Only want to pay for that in the rich neighborhoods. Because who maintains those trees? Yeah. The city. So, I mean, I guess the biggest thing that our organization tries to, you know, engage people on is the urban heat island effect. And uh, Would obviously, that be an ecosystem service. Yes. What is that? Planner <laughs> lingo. Apparently, no, it's economist lingo, and it's talking about how there's an economic benefit from the installation of trees. 
whether that mean that the trees are doing some job for an increased value of what they originally cost, per, that whether that be carbon sinks or rainwater uh, soaking up. Yeah, catching the rainwater before it has Property to be values. overly compensated by huge gutters and what have you. Uh, property values and or the cost of how much you have to pay in air conditioning. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is a huge thing. When I was in Kansas City at a conference, one of the groups had actually created a nutrition fact for each tree, and it was a tree fact, and part of it included how much this tree brings in value to the community it's in, in cooling and ecosystem services and all that. And it was really cool. It was like, you know, every tree was like $400 a year, depending on the species and all that. It was fascinating. I mean, one of the programs we do, we're really lucky, um, and a lot of Mesa participates in this, is the Free Shade Tree Program. I mean, it doesn't necessarily address um, income inequality, which we were talking about before, because it is specifically for single-family homeowners or renters. But uh, We do have a lot of homeowners or renters that yeah. live in, in homes that are low income. Yeah, so I mean, it does address, some, not the multifamily homes, but the single family. And uh, so uh, with the Salt River Project, the SRP utility company, they value reducing uh, electricity through planting sh- shade trees. So we teach people how to actually plant them strategically around their home. On the west side of the house is best, and right next to a window is even better. And you can actually reduce your utility bill by quite a bit. And so that's why they're incentivized to pay for this sort of program. A palm tree, right? <laughs> palm trees are monocots. I refuse to call them tree. They're like, not I, trees. They're, they're a in the type grass of grass. Family. <laughs> but excuse they do me, excuse me. We need to stop. Food. We yeah. need to stop and know that the last 45 minutes of this podcast, when we get through the rest of this, will be ranting against palm trees (laughs) he only spent a page and a half on it but uh, i believe i have some large foul language written um on that page um there's a a street in phoenix named after palms right (laughs) well and i you know what i say if you're gonna have a palm tree have a palm tree that provides food at least so Um, you only have to climb 90 feet to get to the dates there are people that are gleaners that will do it you know well, I mean, I guess it's a liability issue. So one of the, the main, cities, but. so one of the other benefits I wanted to f- touch on is that uh, because they have such a powerful impact on walkability, street trees have been associated with significant improvements in property values and retail viability. Mm-hmm. Street trees bring more business. Don't cut them down in front of your sign, because street trees are a community asset, and because you have one in front of you, it builds a greater business environment find a different way to display your sign the tree's more important than that visibility we'll find a different way your sign's important but we need to provide the shade and the enclosure and all the benefits from that so do you think that there's that as we talk about benefits in that way do you think that that's maybe exaggerated in a market like here where there may be less of that as opposed to say the midwest or you know where the, where that the natural environment just lends itself to that more. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I do think the ROI is different here because, so if you have a native tree, there is more pruning needs to make it, especially, I mean, if you're in a residential area, maybe not. But if you're doing a street tree, then there's particular pruning or otherwise you're going to lose your tree to monsoon season and 
And so pruning properly isn't it's a maintenance expense, but you're hiring people, you're creating jobs. And then there is more water. So like a lot of other cities, when they do tree initiatives or tree plantings with other organizations, they plant one gallon trees or smaller trees and they water it a few times a year during summer months, maybe. Um, and here we can't really, I mean, you can technically do that with certain trees, but they won't They won't thrive. grow the way you want to for they, an urban setting. Yeah. So our trees are really smart that are from here. They know if it's super hot that they can drop their leaves, that they can adapt. That's why they can live here with uh, very little water. So, I mean, the ROI is different, but the, you know, if you invest in it, compared to how much you spend on loads of laundry a week, compared to the tree in your yard or a few trees in your yard, you're spending more on your laundry than you would on a tree. So one of the things that one of my takeaways, or at least my thoughts I had while I was reading this article is that, you know, I think about like tree lined streets back east and you have these big 150 foot, 75 foot wide, beautiful trees and you like plant one tree and it plant covers everything. Like in Arizona, well, in the Sonoran Desert, where we live, we live in the desert. <laughs> I feel like I always need we, to say that. By the way. I think we displace the desert. We live in the desert. <laughs> we live in a concrete we've, jungle now. <laughs> we've, made it, we've made it hotter and drier. Um, but we need more smaller trees. So our trees that thrive here that do well are smaller. You know, we do a 35-foot tree instead of a 105-foot tree. but I've seen mesquites, like older mesquites, 50 oh, yeah. feet tall, mm-hmm. 40 feet. Big Don't trees. you have one in your backyard? That's a pecan. Oh, a pecan. Huh. Pecan trees are big, too, but they so, take a lot of water. Yeah. Okay. Brittle branches That's are not good. great for going over. They're from Georgia. It's from the south. We're just in the south. Yeah, okay, I was being quiet about because I was like, I don't think those, uh, whatever. They grow out in the desert all the time. <laughs> so our so what we say, so the common phrase is right tree, right place. But what we what I say and what I say Trees Matter says is that it's right tree, right place, right person. So like this happens in different communities, right? If a community really values a specific type of tree, they're more likely to take care of it. And it's the same with an individual person. So my grandmother has a bunch of citrus trees. She can't even eat citrus. So it's like the worst kind of tree. She's resentful that she has to water it. She has to find someone to take all the oranges and tangerines when uh, when it's fruiting. And she can't wait to cut them down, right? But if you if, you, if she had, like, trees that she actually, like, cared about or valued, she grows plants on her. Yeah, like an orchid tree yeah, would be something. great in her yard, you know. Yeah, so it's definitely important to have it's that emotional. It's not native, but it is low water use. Yeah, that emotional or that functional relationship with <laughs> Martin the tree. was glaring. Because when you no, have, like, there's... That was an eyebrow. That was not a glare. <laughs> well, Sorry. Relationship no, with the tree. So, like, a big thing is, is, like, especially, like, for most people, they're busy. They have things going on. They don't have a lot of time to water trees. Then a desert-adapted tree is really the best tree for them. And it's going to bring more for, in for them than what their, like, time and need is. But, like, for some people who love pecans or love other kinds of fruits, then maybe having a fruit tree, if they're willing to spend the water, is the right tree for them. Yeah, my dogs love pecans. 
It's the right tree for them. It's the right tree for them. So, you know, that makes me think about the right tree in the right place. Um, So some of the things, uh, downtown Mesa, when we redid our streetscape in the 90s, 80s and 90s, we planted a lot of Palo Breas, uh, which I think is a beautiful tree. But we also didn't trim them right. So we created these giant Dr. Seussian trees. And so people are like, the Palo Brea is a terrible tree because it falls down in storms and it doesn't provide shade. And, but in other ways, in places where it's, in places in downtown where they're trimmed nicely, it's really this iconic tree that's beautiful and green. And, and then with the bright, incredibly bright yellow flowers that all of our businesses hate because they have to sweep them up. But, you know, part of that is thinking about litter. But also, I mean, I grew up in Maryland when I was little. And the amount of times I had to sweep leaves was a lot. Rake leaves in our yard and pick all of that up. Um, what what do you think about the idea of iconic trees or trees that are related to place? And also, can you get a good canopy out of a palo brea? Um, I mean... You grow 35 feet. Yeah, they can get pretty big. I mean, they're similar to a structure of like a Palo Verde, right? Mm -hmm. The way they grow. So, I mean, we give out Palo Verdes um, as a a shade tree because they grow really fast. Um, But yeah, if you don't prune them properly, they're multi trunk trees, right? So they like to take up a lot of space, which just from the interest of managing your space. A multi trunk tree is perfectly fine. In, in an urban place. It doesn't take up, t- I mean, if you have a five foot sidewalk, you're not putting any tree in the five foot sidewalk. You already put right. the telephone pole in the middle of the sidewalk. So right tree, right place, you want to make sure that you're not being too hungry with the space in a, in a space that's already uh, not quite adequate for a pedestrian, right? Yeah, I mean, a Palabrea grows umbrella-like to 25 feet wide. Yeah, so I mean, a lot So that's of, what you get for canopy. Yeah. So I think, so one thing that I've noticed that I have a lot of fun with is that there are trends with trees, especially street trees, but just like in the way that like we even, um, that we even did, uh, our, you look at planning in different types of buildings, you can actually tell when a tree was planted by their size and type and like if it was trendy at that time. So right now what's becoming really popular, red push pistachio, which is... Um, Everybody's doing that. Yeah, so Chinese uh, um, types that are coming from somewhere else, obviously China, and um, but that do well in our climate. Um, so you have Chinese elms, you have red push pistache, um, southern live oaks are still really popular. So these are single trunk trees. Um, the southern live oaks take a little longer to grow, so and that's the other thing is um, people aren't willing to wait to have shade here. Um, I, it, you know, you look at puppies and you think you're they're cute, but when you look at a baby tree, you're just like, <laughs> what's wrong? Frustrated that it's still a baby tree. So yeah, I mean, there's that sort of issue that I think people don't value that. This tree will one day be large. I'm they curious if you now. have a favorite street tree. A favorite street tree? Um, I mean, my favorite tree is the mesquite tree in general. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we have like our annual mesquite pancake breakfast. Mesquite you can make into flour and cook mm-hmm. with, and it's um, 
we actually made this um, this drink. It's like a mesquite nectar that has similar electrolytes to like coconut water that probably people drank when mm-hmm. it was hot out here. So it's, it's called Desert Gatorade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. Oh, I've seen that in the stores. Yeah, not yet. Ten years, all the hipsters well, and will that's, be drinking it. That's the crazy thing. Did not tell thing. me I was coming into this hippie thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the crazy thing is there's a lot of trees out here, like even the ornamental oranges. Those can actually be like processed it for dressings or mixed as juices, but people don't realize there's Lemon a lot of gleaning that can happen. I've had, yeah, I've had orange cookies from those. Yeah. you know, oranges that aren't good raw. You told me it was just good for tricking the freshman at ASU. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. yeah. Pick it and say, hmm, this is really good. So I that's another benefit trees provide is food, which we talk about a lot. Yeah. So, and, and mischief. And yeah. mischief. And mischief matters. The new therapy is tree climbing now. There's a whole article out about <laughs> kids climbing trees, like with learning how to climb how arborists and foresters climb. Yeah. Well, so that's, that's a new fun. hobby. Yeah. That's great. So I do love the Chinese pistache. It's a great looking tree. Yeah. Um, and but you I can't love have the all Chi- your trees be. Chinese elm. Yeah. That's another great looking tree. But both of them are overused. Right. They are everywhere and they don't talk about our space where we are. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing that trees do is that they talk about the, the place. Um, whether it's imported or not. So Pretoria in South Africa is really well known for huge jacaranda-lined streets that they they planted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jacarandas along the streets going to the South African capital um, in like the 1890s, you know, the turn of the century, the last one. Uh, and I was like, oh, the jacaranda is such an amazing South African tree. No, they're all from South America and they shipped them across the ocean. It, it tree is about place in a lot of ways in my head. And that's why I love, you know, the, the blue Palo or the Palo Brea or the blue Palo Verde are beautiful trees that speak to me of our desert and also provide shade and cool things. But this is where I go back to like trends and trees, right? Cause you have these micro cultures that are defined by trees. You see those olive trees in specific neighborhoods mm-hmm. or the mulberries yeah. that were planted during a certain time, like in the fifties. <laughs> um, so like there is that sort of like, these are the trees when we look back that were all planted in 2017. Well, I, think, I think there's a good, I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to shift us on. You well, I, I, I'm thinking in terms of, uh, so I've only been in Arizona about two years and when we first drove through, I think it was Gilbert. I think we first drove through Gilbert down this tree line. No, just an example. I know. <laughs> it's not Mesa. We don't like, we don't like Gilbert. Here. But no, as an, as an example, I see the sign. I see it. We have a sign that says Mesa. Really big here. Okay. So uh, I was driving through Mesa. Don't lie to us. We know. Come on. Um, but. The, the trees lining the streets really created this, um, I would say illusion, but it, it almost felt like being, I grew up in the Midwest, so mm-hmm. it kind of felt for a minute like we were in the Midwest. And like, so it's there. a bunch of Sisus or something. Right, I don't uh, even remember what there, there are a lot of streets in like sort of the, the newer development, newer, like late 90s, early 2000s developments in um, Gilbert or Chandler or whatever, wherever one of those, but Mesa, um, that that are lined with these beautiful Chinese elms that have grown in 
wonderfully. Um, double lined um, on the e- either side of a five lane road that goes 50 miles an hour. Uh, so you can't walk there safely. Your children and dogs will die. Uh, but the streets look gorgeous. And I, I don't disagree. They do look and, amazing. And it almost sort of transports you for a minute. Like all of a sudden you're going, I'm, I'm not, I don't even feel like I'm in Arizona anymore. I'm wherever it was those trees came from in the first place. China. Which, yeah, China. Or, Felt like you were in China. Yeah. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. <laughs> well, I think that that is also sort of like that philosophy of the use of water. So, you know, we use water and we want to use water sparingly in the desert, et cetera, et cetera. But where we use water, we want to be smart about it. So using water to grow trees that provide shelter and coolingness and money into the pockets of our business owners, that it's really important that you use that intelligently and you don't just, you know, like, oh, I'm going to spend all this money improving the streetscape on Main Street, put in uh, some uh, Palo Breas, never teach people how to trim them properly and create these Dr. Seussian trees and then complain that street trees are evil. Right. Yeah, there's a legacy that can be not great if you plant a tree improperly or you don't take care of trees properly. So that's something like tree plantings are fun. Everyone loves to plant trees, but if they see their tree die within a year, a few years, that's makes them disheartened and not want to continue to plant. So I will say that downtown Mesa, because of this culture and trees make people very passionate. Um, I, do you remember when Hanny's cut down the trees in front of the... In the, Pomo, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Pomo's getting trees soon. Yeah. Finally, talk to the city, so... That's good. That's great. <laughs> I, if you guys know Jim McPherson and uh, his, he has a tree used to grow here in Phoenix Facebook, Facebook photo album that he's been adding photos to for like five years, and all he does is take a picture of an empty tree well or the sickly little stick of a tree and say like... We should plant here. And it went from more trees were disappearing in downtown Phoenix to now. How many trees have been planted in the last, like, two years in downtown Phoenix? I don't know how many, but there's been a lot of additions. And part of it is because they have a business improvement district. Right. So they have a function in which. But they had that business improvement district for 20 years. Right. Yeah. So there was an incentive. It's a a focus on. Shade and walkable space and there were all those certain, fun things. There were certain places outside the bid, too, that they were starting to go to and support the city on. Um, and I heard from the back end how difficult it was to work within the city. Um, certain permits that were challenging to get. So just like, I mean, Systems. the city does great things, but sometimes tree plantings don't fit well within the city. They can do that in a more tactical manner. They're not like yeah. just show up, show up, plant it, get the hell out. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, showing up with the irrigation system on the side of the place, tapping into the water system, and running those lines tactically. That's always the issue, though. So yeah, there's there's certain issues. So there's a lot of situations, almost, yeah. not just in Phoenix or probably Mesa, but like in San Francisco and in other major cities across the country where cities are privatized or trees are privatized, so the setbacks are privatized. They're maintained by the homeowner or the pro- private property owner, and mm-hmm. but the 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 tree, but it's still owned by the city, and so you still have to pay the permits to plant a tree in your setback. Mm-hmm. Like that's I just did a planting in downtown Phoenix where 
I, the only reason why we got it waived is we were working within another city department that was giving us a grant to plant these trees. Otherwise, we would have had to pay a permit just to plant them. And then the diversity of trees that we were allowed to have because of the village planning committee was so slim. One of the options was a palm tree. One of the options was a Chinese elm. And then the other one was an ash, an Arizona ash, which had another permit attached to it for high water use. (laughs) So we had really one option that we could actually plant in the setback. Oh my goodness. Um, I thought you could just use the um, Arizona water, the what, what is it, the annual? I don't know how MESA works, if you guys have village planning committees or you no. specific neighborhoods that decide from a community standpoint what's allowed to just be planted. Just the Citrus Groves neighborhood has a pallet. Main, West Main Street has a suggested pallet, but anything in the right-of-way has to be low water use. But they're like, oh, we like this tree or this tree. Downtown Mesa, it's actually, the trees are managed by the city. It's one of the few spots. I will say that because of the drama of that, uh, the city has now hired uh, Norris Design to um, take a look at tree selection, suggest proper trees, so they can start replanting. We must have a uh, hundred empty tree wells on our main street. Um, but the idea is like, oh, that blue Palo Verde was the wrong tree, so they have to pick the right tree. And we've seen some Chinese pistache and a couple other ones go in as experiments, but think we all have to buy in to you know how do you create that idea of what that looks like right and then only allow two trees oh no for the sake of my sanity i'm grateful that i've never worked for a municipality who has seen trees as a threat to the motorist oh my god i'm definitely thinking i'm glad to not work for a place where i have to be the tree police (laughs) yeah i know that well and there's there's also the context within the Arizona and municipality um, where there is a lot of fear politically of having teeth for tree ordinances or creating Mm -hmm. because there's been so much pushback on a state level of what cities can actually enforce Um, and so that creates most cities that have successful funding for urban forestry gets it through tree ordinance funding Hmm. So they, they so it's a prerequisite to funding through certain agencies. So they get agencies? they get certain funding to make sure that certain sizes, trees that are a certain age or a certain right. size have to stay there. You have to pay funding. You have to pay money, a permit to take down that tree mm-hmm. because it's a community good, right? It's a common good. And so um or you can't be a private landholder that decides you want to cut down a city tree because you want your sign or else you'll get a big fine for that. And I mean, if you did that with a light pole, you did that with other public goods, it would be a much bigger issue. So that's one ordinance that is utilized in, you know, Portland and Atlanta and other areas to fund. Is that a recommendation? I mean, I I would like to see as much funding go to forestry, whether it's from budget, allocating budgets in different ways or by creating a, a funding stream. Well, we'll have to look into so, whether or not Mesa has one of those. I would we don't have <laughs> um, So I did want to talk a little bit about the green... Um, done. Um, some of the green or some of the benefits of trees. And like I wanted to go back and talk a little about heat-related illness comments urban heat island effect what's the urban heat island effect 
too much concrete, too much sun, too much sun being absorbed by the concrete, and then nighttime temperatures staying too hot than what they would naturally be expected, thus starting the day off at a higher temperature than what would naturally be expected, and then just that cyclical effect of heat being trapped into the urban environment. Yeah. Air conditioners releasing heat from our house into the environment. The vicious Well, circle. and on top of that, we also have uh, the air inversion, right, to the valley. So mm. we also trap for many months heat, not just heat, but like pollution, right? And so and we do have heat. the issue of heat-related illness and people sick or dying because mm. of heat. And we know that trees reduce that burden. Is that like being in August and saying, I'm sick of the heat? No, that that's like thing? literally showing yeah. up and dying. <laughs> yeah, I just, I'm part of, I all day today I was in a conference with the Maricopa County Health Department because they have an epidemiologist that studies heat-related deaths. And in June, no, in April there was one death. So far there's like 60 since that short of a time. So people, and a lot of them are homebound mm. folks that they don't know their air conditioning is working right, or they don't have transit to get to a cooling station. Well, one of the other things, that I was really surprised to see that, you know, tree-covered tree areas reduce the air conditioning load, which I guess is obvious, but that made me connect that back to the opening portion about how poor neighborhoods mm -hmm. have less tree canopy. So poor neighborhoods are paying for lacking these things in a bunch of different ways, including higher utility bills, uh, lower property values. And His quote is, a properly shaded neighborhood is said to require 15 to 35 percent less air conditioning than a treeless one. I will tell you that my backyard that's com almost completely covered by a, that pecan tree and my front yard probably have about a 10 degree difference, difference. in temperature. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, and so that's the other thing is if you increase the urban tree canopy in general, your trees are working less hard to, they're less stressed because they like help mm. cool each other as right. well. Less likely to die. Yeah. So it's like a, I guess a positive. That's cool. Um, one of the other things is the idea of rainwater services, trying to reduce the amount of rainwater that goes into, well, making it out of our streets, um, retaining it in our soil, watering the trees, but also that means that we have a lower infrastructure cost. So if we have a, a well-managed uh, system of trees that collects water, stores water, uh, that means you can have smaller stormwater pipes, which means that you send more, less gasoline and oil to the river. Yeah. And Mesa has a reward, uh, an award-winning low-impact development guide that talks about how to install these kind of small infrastructure uh, using plants and vegetation in, in the right spaces to collect rainwater in, in events in ways that are kind of unconventional uh, to the big, very large rain collection um, reservoirs that we like to use here in the city or, or throughout Mesa or in Phoenix so Metro. Southern Avenue, we right-sized that street there um, and installed these culverts to collect rainwater. It actually looks beautiful and works mm -hmm. well. In front of the Mesa Urban Garden, we did a retrofit project where we we're collecting rainwater. Now, almost zero water makes it into our storm drains, whereas before we're thousands and thousands of gallons. So we're retaining it 
in Mesa. We're not sending it to Phoenix because they don't deserve our water. <laughs> um, and then also there's a new development on Maine and Date. No, not Date. Oh my goodness. Almost to Horn. Uh, where they're putting in putting this in, and that's the first time I've seen it in private development. Uh, so I'm very excited. Is it a, as well? Or? Uh, El Rancho, it's curb cuts. Oh, curb cuts. Okay. Uh, but it's newly installed. They um, did a they right sized that neighborhood street from a giant like freeway to just a four you know two lanes plus parking lanes with nice. with and it looks great. I'm really excited to see how that works. But the problem is is that we haven't accepted that in our engineering mm-hmm. to reduce the requirement for stormwater retention and, and um, typical basins. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue is um, the departments, we talked about this actually at the conference today, that there's silos. So there's a lot of issues where certain like departments don't really communicate to each other. And so you have landscape architects, and I can tell you landscape architects and arborists don't get along a lot of times, which is very interesting. Um, but you have landscape architects that are trying that, you know, are in their silo and then you have water department that this, this is what I do. And then you have streets. This is what I do. And they don't really, when you think of a tree and it goes in the ground or even water, right. in the way that it can be collected, there's multi-levels of departments that need to address it. And so sometimes it takes a few years of departments butting heads over proposals that are made. And is it going to be my regulate? My regulations don't agree with your regulations that, you know, your responsibilities don't agree with my responsibilities. And so it takes a few iterations sometimes to, to hammer all those kind of differences out. So yeah, the silo effects can be uh, certainly um, something that takes time to overcome. Yeah. So I'm hoping, I mean, Watershed Management Group, they have an engineer on staff now, mm-hmm. and I think they're creating some sort of guide for that. Yeah, they're working to try and um, show that they can actually reduce the amount of stormwater that gets rolled off or rolled to that. In um, engineer speak. In engineer speak. I think the Nature Conservancy is working on that as well to try and, what does that mean in engineer speak? Yeah, um, that's cool. So we need to um, end with palm trees. <laughs> yeah. oh, All right, okay. uh, palm trees. That aren't trees, I thought. Monocots. <laughs> grass. grass. Overgrown grass. Only three cities in America should be planting palm trees. Palm Beach, Palm Springs, and Hollywood. And there, only along Sunset Boulevard. I will point out that I think since this book has been written, L.A. is now banning palm trees from being planted in the right-of-way because they're too expensive to maintain. They use too much water and- They don't um, provide any shade. Not even, I mean, they don't provide any shade, but they literally are causing too high of a liability. So when storms come, Mm. they're throwing palm fronds and Uh, hurting or killing people. Uh, So they've seen as too high of a liability for the city. So as they die off, they will be replacing them with non-palm trees if you haven't encountered a palm frond they can be pretty mean yeah they literally can kill you they're rigid and sharp what about cell towers that are (laughs) (laughs) disguised i'm using air quotes disguised like a palm tree oh congratulations on that one that's like an artistic my favorite have you seen the saguaro that it's like <laughs> it's like this forty foot tall saguaro, and you're like, I don't think that's real. <laughs> that would take so many years. <laughs> oh, I had friends come in from out of town, planners, 
uh, last year for the conference. And the, yeah, as you get out on the interstate and you're going, did I just see a, was that a cell tower? Yeah. Yeah, that's a yeah. cell tower. Yeah. Yeah. Palm trees aren't that shiny. But we also have pine trees. I've seen <laughs> fake pine trees. That yeah, I've seen that. Those are pretty good. Some of them are done well and some of them are, like need more branches. <laughs> Um, and then uh, the last thing he talks about here is the concept of a tutti-frutti uh, tree selection. I think we glanced on that a little bit. But the idea of instead of having tree-lined of a whole bunch of beautiful elm trees, because all those trees died because of Dutch elm disease, oh, yeah. we're now to the point where we want, if we're planting 90 trees, we want 89 different types of trees. And he disagrees with that. I disagree with that, too. <laughs> I think I like the idea of like a three to one ratio, yeah. three of the same, one of a different, giving a little bit of pattern and differential. But the idea of like every, because especially here in the Sonoran Desert, tree A, tree B, and tree C will grow at completely different rates, look completely different next to each other. I don't know. It does sound disjointed doesn't provide that. And while it may seem like a mono, monoculture, and I get that, like, uh, somebody who looks at trees as, like, a uh, piece of nature coming into the city um, can get a, a bad taste in their mouth as to a tree-lined street with all of, like, one type of tree. I do have to say that that is something that provides a character and an identity um, to help speak to those who have entered into that corridor as, like, this is a kind of space of significance or, or a unique character. Um, so yeah, that I mean, helps people. Martin saw that when he was driving in whatever that other city was, yeah, that wasn't Mesa. <laughs> um, you know, that it created, it was memorable. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think Mill Avenue, even though like, that's amazing what they did. So Mill Avenue mm. is uh, all covered in um, it's ficus, ficus, right? ficus, yeah. ficus nativa. Crazy trees or birds. <laughs> yeah, and it, you get covered in bird poop when you walk down Mill Avenue. But it's a oh, beautiful it? enclosed space. It's really great. Those trees are not allowed to be planted on the right-of-way. And so the city of Tempe actually ceded public property to the property owners in a sort of like a, this, uh, because you're not allowed to plant ficus in the right-of-way. Sure. So those are actually um, publicly-owned parks um, where they can allow ficus to exist. Because they're high water use. Yeah. Um, I mean, don't plant them not in big groves like that because they will freeze and you will have a half of an ugly tree and half of a pretty tree. Uh, they're yeah, not... they freeze from the root system too. Yeah. So they're, they're challenging. They take a lot of patience and a lot of water, yeah. which is tough here in the desert. I mean, I so I get what you're saying. Like there is a cultural aspect if you live on maple and have a bunch of maple trees or oak and have a bunch of oak trees i, I only have nightmares on elm street so, okay I mean. yeah <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> but i i guess like from a standard practice i do i do think there should at least be some diversity like you were saying like a three to one or something because you never know um if uh, like i think i got an email the other day from the arizona nursery association of some sort of beetle that attacks some sort of plant that came through the airport. And now that could be, <laughs> I think it's for shrubbery, but you never know if it's something that attacks our pines and then all your pines are gone. Yeah, within a hopefully year we get a palm tree beetle. Yeah. But that's also, <laughs> but also another, <laughs> but also another th thing is, uh, 
<laughs> is is um, age aging of trees, right? Yeah. Everyone loves beautiful old trees, but those are the trees that are aging out, and people don't consider to continue planting after just like you can't just do one planting. You have to consider planting after another five years from now, and then another five years or whatever interval because like you. So we're doing an initiative that we're planning for finding funding for for April for Arbor Month. We're going to give a, a bunch of trees to different schools across the valley because most schools have aging tree infrastructure, so they don't have the funding to plant new trees. But they had trees planted when they first founded the school 30 years ago, and that's all the trees yeah. that they have. Yeah, I mean it's also the diversity of age. Well, I think that's a great point, too, because when they redid the streetscape in downtown Mesa, they planted all the trees, the trees at the same time. And so they're all the same age, which means they're all the same size. They they look all right, um, never mind the poor maintenance. But they might die out. But as they die, they're not being replaced. And so we've had at least 10 years of trees not being replaced along the street, which means that when they get replaced, of the 400 trees that are there, I don't know how many, a hundred of them are all going to be exactly the same age, and which means that at whatever the lifespan of that tree is, we're going to have the same issue. And, you know, it's the whole idea of planning for infrastructure replacement. you got to do it as it's going, otherwise you're going to have a huge expense all at once rather than spreading that out. All right, last thoughts from our guests? I guess the one thing that we didn't touch on that I think is really important is the idea of... Uh, the generalists, the mayors that are talking about trees and the initiative, the New York One Million Trees. I don't know if you know what happened with that, but Bloomberg basically made sure that uh, all million trees were planted like a few years early. So they made it within their 10-year goal of planting a million trees. When Bloomberg wants something done, he gets it done. Well, you know, I think uh, Bette Midler was like the the founder of like the tree organization in New York City with her famous friends being board members. So there was a lot of funding available to make that happen. Um, I'll note that the generalist thing is something that he's come to a number of times in this book and that he speaks to the need for generalists to connect dots across those silo effects uh, quite a bit. Yeah, so I think we have to hang on to those when it comes to trees especially. You, Martin. You know, going back to the to the urbanism, the the walkability chapter, and and uh, and all that business. The I I think there's a lot of wisdom there, and I think there's a a practicality quotient that goes into that as well. Because if you get into the political realm. Um, you get into kind of what we've always done and how this is this is how we've always done, which I've never, I think Ryan knows, I'm, I've never been one of those, yeah, we've always done it this way, so we're going to keep doing it this way. Um, and there are times when you can kind of flash all these great numbers and facts and, and, and anecdotes about how great these other places are until you get them into a space like that, the, the people who are making those decisions, you've got to get them to sort of grasp that that concept tangible. in a in a tangible way. Thank you. That's exactly where I wanted. Um, you know, when we went to, we took a bunch of people to a couple of different things around the Phoenix area. We took them 
took our elected officials to Vegas to see something specific and and they they, they grasped it all of a sudden they're like oh okay wait wait I, I get it now but then when you get back to your own community and you have to think about how do we translate this um, and how do we get away from how we've always done it and that that's still a challenge I know it's a challenge for us mm-hmm. and uh, um, in, in the community that I work in um, so yeah the, the there is that that translation of, of the the concept and and making it work within we talked about context so making right. it work within the a different context and I think this is a plug for all of our listeners and anybody who's come across this podcast maybe for the first time that that's a call to the public to be engaged like the involved democracy aspect can really make a difference in speaking your mind and keeping things on the agenda so the more fans that we have about walkable cities and these walkable concepts and drilling that into our decision makers heads to say that this is something that you care about then that's going to help i think the other lesson is when you travel in this country and other countries and other cities pay attention what feels good what's going on take a look at what's happening on the street to the building look look at those relationships between trees and in buildings and the height shortness and you know what whatever is going on pay attention when you're traveling take pictures and bring them back and say i really like this when i visited wherever because yeah. those little lessons we really can bring home and might emphasize that type of story i like to wear my anthropologist hat whenever i can <laughs> i don't want to see that hat uh-huh. well that's all we have for today join us on like oh wait 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 do you guys have anything to plug wait for people to follow you no? Okay, no followers. Right. They well, don't just follow followers. us online yeah. at fa- on Facebook at Main Street Mesa. Email your comments at mainstmesa at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. The next podcast, we'll be introducing The Interesting Walk, Step 9, Make Friendly and Unique Faces. And Step 10, Pick Your Winners. Are we doing both at the same time? Are we? It's only like... I thought it's the same. 239 to 265. Okay. Um, there's only 30 pages to the end of the book. Gotcha. Although we could do an entire thing just on notes and work cited. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll look forward to the site work cited. That sounds like an exciting podcast. <laughs> Citations. <laughs> we get more beer from that. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of beer. Um, point is, if you've got great palm-lined avenues, by all means, keep them. But understand that palm trees are merely decorative, and don't begin to offer the same environmental benefits as deciduous trees. The last time I checked, most Florida cities had not learned this lesson. Same goes for crepe myrtles, spruce pines, or those other bushes masquerading as trees that somehow grace many a city's tree list. But our theme music is written by Philip Buckman, performed by the Sweaty Palm Trees, and produced and recorded by David Roosh.